0: Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into Scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big-girl pants, because here we go. All right, we are in John 3, starting in 22, and we're going to go 22 to the end of the chapter of John, 22 through 36. And we are going to break it down, but do you remember where we were last week? Wow. We were in some of the richest text in John of all time. For God so loved an unconditional love, a love that is lavish, a love that is realistic. For God so loved, what is the object of his love? The world. The entire world, shocking to Nicodemus, but for God so loved the world. How did he demonstrate it? He gave his only son. Does anything else need to be explained? There is no greater love than one who would give his only son, and not to friends, but enemies. He gave his son while we were yet sinners. Actually, he became sin for us, just like the bronze serpent was lifted, so the son of man must be lifted. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever, the invitation is broad. But the decision is personal. You have to decide who do you believe Jesus is. If you believe in him, you will have everlasting life. And we went on to hear, That that is the very reason he came. He did not come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to save the world. And then John goes on to explain that. For those who believe in him will not be condemned. You will be saved. But for those who do not believe in him, you are condemned already. Jesus did not come to a neutral world. He did not come to... promote himself so we'd either be pro-Jesus or against Jesus. He did not come to give us a decision of, oh, I think I'll choose life or I'll choose death. No, we're already condemned. We are on a road to destruction, and he came to give us a lifeline of the gospel, and it was the greatest thing he could give. He died in our place, and he is saying this. This is the judgment. You've already been judged, but this is the judgment. It's gonna happen in you. The light has come. And When the light comes, it will reveal. It will reveal us. And we will make a decision that we will either love what we see or protect what we see. We will go back to the darkness because we don't want to be exposed because we love the darkness and we hate the light. Or we will be willing to walk into the hands of a loving Savior and say, search me, God. And know my heart, see if there any wicked way in me. And it says that he will come and he will abide in us and he will change us from the inside out. And when that happens, we do that. We risk that so that others may see his works, his works in us. That was beautiful text that we learned last week, incredible theology. And now we go to John chapter three, verse 22, where now they have left the place where he has his discussion with Nicodemus and he moves on with his disciples. So it says this, after this, after what? After everything we've gone through with Nicodemus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Selah. Salem, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And then you'll see in parentheses, possibly in your Bible, it says, for John had not been put in prison. That was added for us to understand the timing. One thing I want to point out is I love the fact that it said he remained there with them or your Bible may say he spent time with them. They were there for a while. They were there for a while. A lot of discipleship was going on as people were coming and still being baptized. And we talk about discipleship a whole, discipleship a whole lot, but I, I need you to understand that discipleship is more than instruction and accountability. When we think of small groups or our discipleship or uh, discipling other people, it doesn't mean that when I take someone on to disciple that all I do is instruct them and keep them accountable. No, what do I do? I spend time with them. Basically, they they abide with me and I abide with them. And honestly, we can learn from each other, but even in mentoring, you are abiding together. You're living life together because what do we know? We learn a whole lot more by observing and being with people than just merely instruction. I mean, we talk about this with our children. They learn more by watching us and being with us and imitating us than they do by a lot of our instruction. Plus, don't you, haven't you ever recognized the fact that the more you hang out with someone, the more alike you get? Like you can finish each other's sentences. Um, You know that you can also tell, like when you think about your children, you can tell what friends they're hanging out with, right? You're like, ooh, I know who you've been hanging out with, because I can hear that kid coming out of your mouth right now, and obviously you fall and hit your head, and you think that's okay in this house, because it sure isn't, right? I mean, am I the only one that sasses like that? I'm like, no, that might be okay there, but it is not okay here, but you know what I'm saying, and so it is, it is about spending time. We get a portion of what Jesus said to his disciples, but... They said, if if we wrote down everything he said and did, we wouldn't have enough room. There aren't enough books in the world to write it down. And so he spent time with them. It's interesting because the synoptic gospels do not include this section. They do not even begin the story until John has been put in jail. So I find it interesting that John John the Baptist has been put in jail. I find it interesting that John the Apostle includes this. Especially because, to be quite honest, it's not the the best scene. I mean, when we read this scene, we see that there is going, it's going to reveal a problem. But you know what else it's going to reveal? A proper heart. So by telling this story, I think the Apostle John is really giving quite a tribute to John the Baptist because These are going to be the last words of John the Baptist that are revealed in the book of John, and so it's like a tribute to him, like, look at this man's heart. So although we see kind of an ugly problem, in the midst of that, he highlights this beautiful, humble heart of John the Baptist, and here's what happens. Verse 25, "'Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification.'" And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. I love how they call this a discussion. (laughs) I wonder what kind of discussion it was, right? Have you ever said that to your kids? We're not arguing. We're having a discussion, okay? Maybe it was a heated discussion, But there there arose a discussion between John's disciples and a Jew. I think that's funny. Weren't John's disciples Jews? So why does it say a Jew? We've talked about this before, actually, in this gospel, because when they say a Jew, they're talking about a certain group of Jews. So it typically is about the religious establishment. And so they say a Jew, so they have this discussion with the Jew, and what is it over? Purification, ceremonial washings, all right, which were part of the old covenant. You remember the old marriage covenant? Um, the portion you probably have memorized, the marriage covenant, the Ten Commandments, right? Love me and only me. What's next? Get rid of all your old boyfriend's pictures, no images, no idols. Honor my name, Why? Because you're going to bear it. Make me the most important thing in your life. Remember the Sabbath? Give me a date day every week. Do you remember that? Beautiful. And if you're going to marry me, be like me. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not covet. And part of that, remember, the old covenant was given so that it was a mirror So that when you look into the mirror, you realize you got junk on your face. Like, you can't even make it past the first one. Love only God, love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I mean, do that perfectly? No. And so you realize that you have junk on your face. And so when that happens, you know you need a washing. The law doesn't wash you. The law reveals that you need a cleansing. And part of the Old Covenant was that there were all kinds of ceremonial cleansing in the Old Covenant because we were sinful, and they were repetitive. I mean, if you think about it, even Moses, when he went up to spend time with God and he came back, do you remember what his face looked like? It was glowing from the glory of the Lord just to be in his presence. I love that. That's a whole journal entry right there. Are you with him enough that you glow with his presence? But if you remember, he had to veil it. Do you remember why? So they wouldn't see that it's going to fade. I mean, that, that would be depressing. And so they would not see that the glory would fade because this was something that was gonna have to be repeated, this cleansing, because we were imperfect, we had not been washed. But all of this was begging for and looking for its fulfillment in the new covenant where we recognize our sin and we long for true, complete washing. John's baptism wasn't about ceremony. It was about what? Preparation. It was about the realization that the old covenant wasn't getting it done. It was about the realization that we needed a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but to be replaced with a heart of flesh. We needed complete washing. We need to be made new. And John's baptism was just preparing your heart to receive that. Well, I'm gonna tell you what, this Jew... He didn't recognize his need, and so in my opinion, what he's doing, and this is just my opinion, so write it in pencil, okay, Um, what he is doing is he doesn't recognize his need, and he doesn't want to hear about it anymore, so he's deflecting. This is what he does. I believe in order to deflect attention off of him, he may have planted a thought in John's disciples' heads which I'm sure he did so in a very arrogant manner, which I hate, don't you? I'm gonna tell you what arrogance makes me mad and then it makes me act like an idiot and then I'm no better. I hate when people are condescending to me. You know what I'm saying? I I cannot stand it. I don't know what it is, but it sets me off. I remember I was in a parent teach, uh, no, I was in a conference with other teachers one time and we were all around the table and there was this, I don't know why I'm telling y'all that, but let's just get to know each other. And we're, uh, it's not in my notes, but we're all at a table, and we're having this teacher conference, and uh, there was this one teacher who always thought she was the boss, whatever, we let her, but, and so we're having this conference, and I was talking to the other teacher beside me about what had just been brought up, and we were just kind of whispering, and she looked over at me, and she goes, shh, y'all, <laughs> in the name of Jesus, <laughs> and I couldn't contain myself. I looked up there and I go, did you just shush me? And, she, and everybody else was like, oh, she spoke to the Kraken. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, uh, did you just shush me? Because, yeah, don't shush me. I mean, it, I, it just got all over me. I thought she's about to see a redneck. It's about to be on. But can't you imagine the tone of voice this Jew was talking to them? And I believe he probably did it pretty arrogant. He probably embarrassed them in front of the crowds that were there. I'm sure he questioned their authority, but what I believe he said was this, Hawk Power Version. Hey, by the way, you guys, y'all aren't the only ones selling this kind of baptism. And by the way, the other guy, he has a much bigger operation than you do. Ooh, and man, it worked. Oh, how fast. We can take a dive. One second, we can be preaching and preparing others' hearts to soften and have repentance. And the next minute, someone can shush you, and all of a sudden, you turn, and it's like and all of a sudden, their hearts became hard out of comparison, and they were filled with jealousy. Oh, my gosh, to such a point that they go even back and in some ways may blame their teacher. Why? Because he's the one that pointed to them in the first place and encouraged others to follow him. So they go, uh, did you notice there, and it might be something fun to write in your margins so you realize it every time you read it, did you notice that they didn't even use Jesus' name? The guy? that was with you on the other side of the Jordan? Like you don't even want to say his name? Or the fact that they talk about that you testified about, but yet they don't even acknowledge what the testimony was? What was it? He's the Christ, and I am not. I mean, y'all, they're bad. They're completely out of their mind. They're off track. This comparison has brought such a jealousy in them. They, won't even, they don't even want to see the truth. They don't want to acknowledge, acknowledge Jesus' name, nor the fact that he is the Messiah and John is not. All they're focused on is the phrase, everyone is going to him. I've said before, Ed Milet, he's this podcaster. Y'all probably don't know him, but he made a statement one day and he said, um, pretty much every area of your life where there is unhappiness or discontentment, there's probably comparison. I think comparison highlights our lack or what we think we lack, and it can create a jealousy in our hearts that, I'm going to tell you what, can take over. We know this. We studied Saul. It can absolutely take you over until you don't even look like who you really are. You don't even acknowledge Jesus in the moment because you have been so taken over. But by the way, there's nothing new here. There's nothing new under the sun. Let me show you some other people who struggled with this as well. The Pharisees, okay? The one that right now is instigating, who is deflecting, they struggled too. John 12, 17 through 19, good example of this. It says that the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. Yeah, it's a big story. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. A couple of things in there we need to realize. First off, the opinion of the world or the excitement of the world is fickle. Literally, one minute they can be for you, you're the best thing on the planet, and the next minute, what? They either hate you or they're just distracted by the next shiny thing. It's just fickle. So they saw something that was miraculous and amazing and they can't stop talking about it and it's the going thing, because we know not all believed, but they followed him, they followed the excitement. And when the Pharisees saw that, they're like, great. Now they're following him. So instead of acknowledging that someone raised a dead man who walked out of the tomb four days later, still wrapped in burial clothes, they're concerned that the crowd is following him. Dude, you should be following him, right? So this jealousy, it, 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 it makes us ignorant. Another one, Numbers 11. This may not be a story you know at all, Numbers 11, read that sometime. It's it's quite the story because uh, the Israelites are in the wilderness, okay? Anytime you see numbers, just picture a bunch of numbers walking around the mountain for 39, 40 years, right? Um, and so God's provided for them manna, which is amazing, okay? It, it is It's sweet. It can be made into all kinds of things, you know, kind of like Forrest Gump, jumbo shrimp, fried shrimp, boiled shrimp. I mean, it had a lot of uses. They did a lot of things with this manna. But at one point, they said they were sick to death of it, sick to death of it. And they were longing for the meals that they had back in Egypt. And so they were living and they were saying that we want meat. And then Moses just can't even deal with them. And he basically says, God, you need to kill me. I, I, just kill me. I can't deal with these people anymore. This is ridiculous. And so God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take 70 leaders from the group, bring them to the tent of meeting. I'm going to show up and talk to you when I do and my spirit falls. It's also the spirit that is in you. I'm going to allow to fall on them. So basically, they'll be able to take the load off. Okay. And he said, and by the way, I am going to bring meat. Moses goes, really? For 2 million people? How are you going to do that? And God goes, what, is my arm short? Literally. (laughs) Okay, he says, I got this. And he does. He blows in quail. Matter of fact, they, they didn't just get quail for a day. They got it for 30 days so much it says, you're going to be so sick of it. It's going to be coming out of your nose. And you know what that means. I've been so sick, stuff came out of my nose, right? And so 70 people were called to gather around. Now, these two guys were on the list. But they didn't show. Let me show you what happens. Numbers 11, 26 through 29. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. I don't know how to say those words very well. And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered. So they were on the list, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. So when the spirit fell, those 70 men began to prophesy. Okay, most of them were around the tent, but these two jokers didn't show up, but they in the camp, they were on the list. The spirit fell on them, and they still prophesied. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Look who has a problem with it. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? So these two men were a part of the list, but they didn't show up at the tent, but the spirit still fell on them and they prophesied. And who had a problem with it? Joshua, the one who'd been his assistant from childhood. So he's worked up in the ranks, he has quite the power. Who do you think probably, this is another Shannon opinion because we don't know, I was not there. Who do you think probably was in charge of gathering the 70 and telling them the rules? Joshua, possibly. You need to, cut. you're on this list. You've been chosen for this opportunity. You need to be at the tenement, And they did not obey him. They did not follow his rules. And so, when the Spirit still fell on them and they prophesied, he's like, Oh no, this is not how this works. It has to be, you know, you got to follow the rules. And so, basically, Moses says, Dude, this is not, you're picking a problem. This is not a problem. Do you know how happy I'd be if the Spirit fell on them all and they started to prophesy? Don't get stuck in the weeds. Okay, some came to the tent, two stayed. They still prophesied. Praise God, I still have 70 people who can help take the load off. Isn't it crazy how we get? Jesus' own disciples struggled with it. Mark 9, 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, "Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon after speak evil of me." They're like, "Jesus, this guy is not on our team. He did not go to our church. How's he making such an? It tell him to stop it. This is a competition we got going here, right?" And he's like, "Are you serious?" First off, anybody that can cast out a demon in my name and it works, he is on my team. He wouldn't be able to do it, right? He's not going to then turn around and curse the name he just used to cast out a demon. You're, you're missing the point. One of the, my most favorite things that CCV ever did, ever, 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 that I was like, this is where it's at. Is that it's not it, it's not about what was it? Not about us campaign where we literally gave millions of dollars to help other churches reach the valley. We're on the same team. And so we get eaten up by this comparison and jealousy. Luke 9, 49 says the same thing. Matthew 16, 21 through 22 says this. This is a whole nother slant. It says, from the time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem... And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. What? So Jesus is preparing them for what's coming. That things are going to change. There is going to be a shift. Suffering is coming. Hard times are coming. Like, this is a period, this is a season preparing for this suffering. And Peter's like, "Mm, no. Yeah, I don't want suffering. No, no, that's not going to happen. I don't want change. I want it to to stay the same. I I don't want to experience loss. No. John's disciples do not like the fact that Jesus is now baptizing. Just as they are, but with greater success. You know why? They see the end in view for themselves and their ministry. They don't want change. They don't want loss. But that's what God meant for it to be. I have a question. Why didn't they leave John and follow Jesus? Think about that a little. Many did. Why didn't they leave John and follow Jesus? Why did they stay on? What did they expect their future to be? Were they more loyal to their prophet than they were the Christ? Or were they more loyal to their own comfort? John's ministry was to introduce Jesus, and he's done it. Did they think their ministry would be constant and unchanging? Man, There could be some serious application here. I can think of some journal questions. I wrote them down. Maybe you ought to think through them over the season. Because speaking of, life is a collection of seasons. We never stay in the same season. If you think life stays the same, well, you've lost your noodle. Some questions. What are we holding on to for comfort? What are you trying to control or micromanage? You don't want anything to go wrong. You don't want things to come to an end. You don't wanna suffer. You don't wanna go through hardship. You're just so busy micromanaging, trying to micromanage everybody because you just want everything to stay the same, happy, everything's going great, and you think you're the tool to get it done. How well do you deal with change? Ooh, I thought I dealt pretty good with change. I'm usually not too bad with change. I'm going to tell you what, you can get your threshold to change when all of a sudden everything changes. Nothing is the same. Not one thing looks the same. You know, even leaving for Christmas, going to your daughter instead of your daughter coming here and just different things, and how do you do that? How how am I going to fly there and have the breakfast casserole that we've always eaten on Christmas morning? How am I supposed to have that ready? You're supposed to do that the night before and put it in the oven. How am I going to do that? How am I going to do that in an Airbnb? How am I going to go grocery shopping? Well, I'm not going to go grocery shopping. She's going to have to go grocery shopping. Hello, you're 24. Pack it, get the Airbnb ready. Mama's coming in Christmas Eve. Like, I mean, you know, little things, but change and change and change and change. How well do you deal with change? How much do we place our identity in what we do? This took such a hold on them that they even refused to mention Jesus. They refused to acknowledge him and who he was. Man, by holding on to the old, they were missing the incredible blessing of the new. Can you think of a time when you were forced to make a change, and yet it turned out to be the best thing for you? Because they're going to be forced. Because eventually John's going to be put in prison and he's going to be beheaded. Their leader. Their leader is going to retire and die. You know what? One thing, sometimes we're forced to make a change. I think COVID has done that. I don't think uh, COVID stinks. It enrages me. You know, I, I get that. But it has forced us to take a look at a lot of things. For some people, it has literally changed the trajectory of their lives. It's going to change their career because they're going to go back and their career is not going to be there. And they're going to have to decide, are they their career? Is their identity what they do? It's going to change possibly like how we do ministry in many ways. I mean, all kinds of things. It's changed who we rely on because we've lost, lots of people have lost their job. It's one thing to say you rely on Jesus. It's another to have to. I mean, there's all kinds it's also made us sit and realize what our families really like, or what our marriage is really like, or what we're really like, because we have to sit with ourselves for so long. I mean, we're forced. sometimes change is so hard, and suffering is hard, but what can come out of it can be pretty amazing. John must remind them of what he has already said. They need to be reminded. Do you know how much we need to be reminded? I picked three of a jillion verses that talk about being reminded. Romans 15, 15. But on some points, Paul says, I have written you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. What is he saying? On some issues, I have been very bold with you to remind you of the grace of God 1 Corinthians 4.17, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 2 Timothy 2.14, he he commands, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearer. Gosh, we need reminding. Honestly, for a lot of you, that's all I do. You come here every Tuesday. And to be honest, at church, I go to church. Most of the time, they're teaching something in many ways I know. But they teach it, and it's like a reminder. It hits to my heart. We all need to be reminded. That's why it says, Don't neglect assembling together. We need reminders. And can I tell you, we need reminders, especially when we're stirred up, right? It says, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words. We need reminders, especially when we're filled with emotion. We need that like these disciples are right now. They're fired up. We need someone to get in our grill and to remind us what we know. Or maybe we're anxious over something. Or maybe we're grieving and we need to be reminded of the hope. We all need reminders because I'm going to tell you, emotion, it's hard. So John answers them and he says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's reminding them. You need to understand something. This ministry, it is a gift. I don't deserve it. It was given to me. It has always been his plan, his way, his words. I've told you this, I'm not the Christ. I was the one pointing to him. Paul says the same thing in Romans 1 and in Ephesians 3, in Romans 1, Paul says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of god in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedient faith the obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst the nations i need to remember that always that ministry My ministry, it's not my ministry, it's his ministry. Which I need to remember so my heart never gets arrogant and I need to remember so my heart never gets overwhelmed. Because it doesn't all fall on me. It's his ministry, I'm a tool, that's it. Ephesians 3, 7 says of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. We all have a ministry. We all have gifts. And the gifts were given to us to be given away. They were never ours to hold on to and boast over. He's like, somehow along the way, you guys have forgotten. This Jew has gotten you stirred up and you've lost your ever living mind because I've told you and I've told you plainly I was given this, this is a gift. It's not about us, it's about him. My job has always been to point to him and I did. I'm not the Christ. And he reminds them that this ministry was never intended to highlight them. Let us not pass up on this application. All we have and all we do have been given to us by God. I loved this series at church we are not the owners. We are the general managers. And the minute you start thinking you're the owner, you're in real trouble. It's not ours. It's God's. We manage it. We may not have been sent before Christ to point to others, but I promise you we've been left behind to point to others. That's our job. John the Baptist was the foreteller. I mean, he He told of Jesus' coming, but why do you think we're left behind? Especially now, I'm like, I don't want to be left behind. I mean, I'm out. I'm ready to be out. So the only thing that could possibly be worth leaving me behind would be for me to point others to the way and trust that when I get there, and I look backwards, it will seem but a moment, although it seems for freaking ever to me right now. You have been left behind for a purpose. Are you fulfilling your purpose? Are we so self-centered into ourselves, looking at our own comfort, hating change and griping about change and getting set in our ways, and we just want to ride it out? We don't wanna do anything different. We don't want anything uh, shuffled up or messed up. We just want comfort. We don't wanna suffer. We're gonna ride this puppy out. Wrong, wrong. You have a purpose. And the purpose is to point others to Christ. This life is not about you. It's not about our comfort. That's the American gospel and it's baloney. And maybe we're gonna learn it and we might learn it the hard way. Why are you here? you've been given a ministry, and it is to point others to Christ. He says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The friend of the bridegroom, it would be similar to our best man. He oversaw the details of the wedding. He served as the master of the ceremony. He was responsible to bring the bride to the bridegroom to start the ceremony. His task was complete, he said. I've done what I was meant to do as the bridegroom's friend. I have brought the bride to the bridegroom. John MacArthur said this. I think it's interesting. That just goes to show that you don't have to, you can still quote people that irritate you, okay? (laughs) There's still good stuff, even if you disagree on some things. You can edit that out if you want to. (laughs) He's an amazing exegetical teacher, yeah. There is good evidence that according to Mesopotamian law, the friend of the bridegroom was forbidden under any circumstances to marry the bride, even if the bridegroom rejected her. I'd never heard that. I thought that was really interesting. And that, let me to say it again. It says there is good evidence that according to Mesopotamian law, the friend of the bridegroom was forbidden under any circumstance to marry the bride, even if the bridegroom rejected her, which would explain why Samson got so stinking mad when his fiance was given to his companion, if you remember. I had never heard that. But here's the deal. John's job as the best man, as the friend of the bridegroom, was to bring the bride to the bridegroom, and he had done that. And he had brought the faithful remnant still there in Israel to Jesus. That's what he did. And so when the, think about it, when the friend of the bridegroom brought the bride, and he heard the excitement in the bridegroom's voice that he had done his job, and now the focus would be on the bridegroom, the friend was what? happy. He's happy for him. He's the friend of the bridegroom and he's united the bridegroom and the bride. He's done his job. He's like buddies. Why are you upset? I'm elated. I've done my job. You see, he must increase and I must decrease. It's a must. This has always been God's plan. And matter of fact, if you don't understand this, you think you're mad now? You ain't seen nothing yet. If you're mad because some crowds have shown up at the beginning for baptisms, you have no idea what he's about to do. Crowds, changing the world, are you kidding me? He must increase, therefore I must decrease. He who comes from above, he starts to break down these verses, he reteaches, some people think that this is not John the Baptist speaking. Some people think this is John the Apostle um, commentating because they think John the Baptist would not have had this kind of insight. But I gotta tell you, John the Baptist had the insight of behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So I'm gonna keep it in context. And I'm gonna suggest that John the Baptist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit explained the following things. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. From above is the Greek word anothen, A N O T H E N. It is the same word translated as born again. So what it is talking about is that he has, remember? To be born again, to be born of spirit, physical birth spirit, I mean, physical births physical, spirit births spirit. And this is saying he has a heavenly origin. He is physical and he is spirit. He is from heaven. Earth here is the word cosmos and it's the word for world. It has no negative moral implication. It is merely referring to human limitation when it says that. So in other words, John is saying, well, he didn't say this. I'm going to say this. John was amazing. I mean, we know about John the Baptist that it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, okay? We also know that Jesus said he's the greatest man ever born of woman, okay? But at the end of the day, although he was powerful, he was a powerful teacher, he was persuasive, he was self-disciplined, he was all in, he was still what? He was still man. And because of that, the power of the spirit was limited because of the flesh. But as far as Jesus, oh no. He who comes from heaven is above all. There is no limitation on him. He is God wrapped in flesh. No limitation. In 32, it says, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. In the old covenant, God spoke through men. He spoke through prophets. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he speaks to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power if you ever get in a discussion about the deity of christ the book of john is the place to come hebrews 1 1 through 3 would be another great place to come what is this saying he is fully god in flesh no limitation all things have been given to him he has authority over all things before Jesus, it was all secondhand information, but Jesus is speaking firsthand. This is eyewitness knowledge of the heavenly things. John 3, 11, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Those were the words he spoke to Nicodemus. John 8, 25 through 26, they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, this is the Pharisee speaking, and then Jesus, Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, like I got you figured out, but he who sent me is true. And I declared to the world what I've heard from him. Like I've got you figured out, why is it taking you so long to figure me out? I've told you from the very beginning who I am. I am the son of God. I've not only said it, people have said it about me and every single thing I've done has proven the authority of what I've said. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. The father has given him all, no limitation. He has full knowledge and who has he given it to? John 7, 46, and the officer answered when he was inquired. No one ever spoke like this man. Although Jesus's testimony is firsthand, they would not receive it. John 5, 42 through 44. I know I'm giving you a lot of uh, scripture, but the Bible teaches the Bible. And I promise you, it'd be awesome if over this next few weeks that you're off, if you would really go back and meditate on some of these scriptures, especially in this season where Jesus, the Son of God, was born. We're celebrating him. John 5, 42 through 44, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from only God. He's like, are you kidding me? I came. I was the light of the world. Everything I told you was true and I proved it by what I did. And you refuse to believe. Yet some other guy can come in his own name. And you believe. Why? Because you receive glory from one another. Because you care more about what the world thinks than what I think. John 12, 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And wasn't this the whole prologue of the book of John as we opened it up? John 1, 9 through 11, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Verse 33, And our text says, whosoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. There's some hope. Basically, it is saying that most people will reject, but there will be some. There will be some that set their seal to this, that God is true, and that everything Jesus has spoken is straight from God, and it is true. They have set his seal. In the ancient world, how did they set a seal? with a signet ring that represented you. We'll see that um, when, remember when Pharaoh gave his signet ring to, um, who did he give it to? uh, Joseph, right? He gave him his ring. He says, so whatever you seal, it's in my name. Uh, Esther, in the book of Esther, the king gave his ring to Haman. That was a scary situation, right? But basically the seal says that I agree. I certify. In other words, in our language, I sign off on it. That's what it means. So those who believe his testimony, thereby certify that God is true and he is speaking truth through Jesus. Jesus is who he says he is. Titus 1, 2. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. Matthew 17, 5, he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What more do we want? First John five ten. whosoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God was born, that God has borne concerning his son. Verse thirty four of our text, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. He is God in flesh. Colossians two nine, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things in his hand. He has full authority. I'm just skimming my notes because we're running out of time, but I want you to see. Oh, by the way, he has full authority. Is there anything, I mean, he didn't show us. He calmed the storm, right? What does that show us? Jesus got it over everything natural, okay? He calmed, he, he, he freed, he He got the demons out of the demoniac. He is the God of everything supernatural. The minute he got back on shore, right, he goes and he's going to uh, Jairus' house, and he gets interrupted by the hemorrhaging woman. And we see that just when she reached out to touch the hem of his garment, she was healed. And not only... Is he a God who heals, but he's a God who restores because he called her daughter and he basically gave her back to community, right? He's a God who restores. And then when he got to Jairus' house, what did he do? By then she had died and he raised her from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. He backed up every single thing he said by every single thing he did. There is nothing more clear. He is God in flesh fully physical, fully spiritual. He came. He came by the will of God. God gave everything under his authority. Everything he has said is true. The light came into the world. But men, loving their wicked ways, turned and went back to the darkness because they loved the darkness and they hated the light. But not all. Because some will see and they will go into the light. And they will accept it. And at the end of this chapter, he finishes up like this. Whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God, what? Remains. It doesn't say fall on. It says what? Remains on. It's already on. So it will remain on. I want you to see something. Every good prophet leads this way, leaves this way. Every one of them. They leave telling their people, you have a choice. You have a choice. Listen to Moses, Deuteronomy eleven twenty-six 26 through 28. <clears throat> see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commands of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go, it says, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. In other words, he's like, if you will follow the way that I am telling you, you will have life. If you do not, death. Joshua twenty four fifteen. Joshua And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in those lands you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah, 1 Kings 18 through 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if it's Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Every good leader, every good prophet, every good teacher will bring you to the point where they will say the bottom line is this. Whom do you serve? Who do you believe he was? The light came in. The light came into the world. A star showed the wise men. The glory of the Lord shone all around the shepherds. The Savior has come. And uh, it's us. We have to decide. The invitation is broad, but the decision is personal. Who do you think he was? He is either God or he is a liar. He was not a good teacher. That's not what he did. He died in your place. The difference between every other religion in Christianity is the fact that we know we can't make it and we need substitutionary atonement. Something had to die in our place so that we could be born anew because man is spiritually dead. So let me ask you, have you made the choice? Have you ever made the choice of who you really believe Jesus is? You are not promised tomorrow, you are not, and neither is anyone. So if you, haven't ma- if you haven't made the choice, today's the day. He came into the world so that you could see and that you could have life. And there are people out there everywhere, in masks, shopping, doing their thing, and they have no idea that the condemnation is upon them. And we have the cure. We can't change a heart, but man, we can reveal the light to them and give them a choice. Whom do you serve? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you of the power of the word of God to transform lives. Thank you for the power of salvation. Thank you for the hope that we have in salvation. We love you, and I pray that this, even in the midst of this crazy world, is the most intimate, wonderful Christmas for all those who believe in you. Lord, may we not get distracted. This conversation with this Jew was a distraction. It was a distraction from the purpose that we're there. Don't let us get distracted by comparison and jealousy and the gods of this world. But let us focus on you, the light of the world that came in because you keep your promises. And you came in and you revealed yourself to us so that we could see and we could live. And God, may we be a light to the other nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at it's Mary shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.